Well, how, how do you know when you're done? How do you know when you're done? Let, let me talk with you about that for a second because it's a question that every generation has to ask. When is our job as the people who are leading in business, in church, in our families, when is it done? When have we crossed enough of the line to say that we've been successful at doing the job that we are supposed to do? Now, we're in our fifth week of our Family Matters message series. I wanna talk with you about making an impact on the next generation. It's a really big deal. It's a big deal to me because I'm a pastor and our church has a unique niche in this general North Cincinnati area. We, ha we are largely a family church. Not exclusively do people come who have families, but largely people who have families come. And so kids and students are a big part of what we do. We can't ignore that. That's a big part of what we do. And so to that end, to make families healthy, we focus a lot on marriage and relationships. But even if you're not married, the principles we're talking about can work. So as a pastor, I have to ask, how do we make an impact on the next generation? How do we measure success? How do we know when we're done? But not just as a pastor, I'm a dad. And I got four kids. Somebody asked me once, what's having four kids like? And I said, imagine you're drowning and then they hand you another baby. That's kind of what having four kids is like sometimes, right? So I said, dad, when am I done? When, when, do I, when have I crossed enough of the line to say that I've been largely successful at the task? I, I think that's an important question. When, when, when can we say that this generation has given enough effort to make the impact that we need to make so that the generation coming after us is set up for success. Now, I don't know if you know this or not. I don't know when's the last time you thought about it. But the truth is, is that family, right there in your message notes, point number one, from the very beginning, family was God's design to build legacy into the next generation. That's the first blank, family. Family was God's original design to build a legacy into the next generation. It, family becomes an incubator where we grow up the people that are gonna come after us. It's been joked about that we should be very careful because these are the very people who are gonna care for us when we get older and can't care for ourselves. The, the, the people coming after us, these are the people, they're gonna take what we've handed them they're gonna pass it through the grid of their own values and experiences and hopes and dreams and disappointments and hurts. And they're gonna take it and they're gonna do something with it. And biblically speaking, like according to God's word, both Old and New Testament, the family is the primary place where that handing off takes place. And I wanna talk with you about this moment of contemplation that we're gonna do for the next few minutes. I hope that really what I start today, you'll go on and maybe over dinner tonight or sometime this week, maybe with your spouse, with a friend, maybe even with your kids or your nieces and nephews, your grandkids, whatever, your neighbors, maybe you can have a conversation about how this generation is doing and passing off a legacy to help the next generation succeed. Now, there are a couple of verses that we're gonna rally around today. One is found in the Old Testament in First uh, Chronicles chapter 12. And it's just a snippet of Israel's history. 
right? It's Israel's history, and as Christians, we kind of commandeer that history and say that we can be inspired by that history. We can learn from that history. And there's one particular moment in Israel's history where there's a phrase that jumps out that I want us to use as a rallying point today. First uh, Chronicles chapter 12, verse 32. Uh, this is a chapter that is listing a group of people, family units, sons and grandsons of a man whose name was Jacob and was changed to Israel. It becomes the nation of Israel, if you will, in the Old Testament. And a particular family name that becomes important is the name Issachar, right? So of the sons of Issachar, men who understood the times with knowledge of what Israel should do, their chiefs were 200 and all their kinsmen were at their command. So in this, you can read the whole chapter. In this chapter, that kind of gives a rundown of all the major families and all the major groupings in the nation at that time. It was said of the children of Issachar, this phrase, they understood their times. They knew how important the time they were in right then was. It, they took advantage of that and they led with that knowledge. They progressed with the knowledge of what was important at the moment. Now, this question of when do we cross the line? When are we done? How do we know if we've been successful? It's not something that often feels very urgent. It might feel urgent from time to time if you're a parent or an aunt or an uncle and you see something on the news and you might wanna go something like this. I've heard done before. I've done a little bit of this. Man, kids today, kids today. You know, or, or you see something, some some sociologist has done some work about what's going on in the workforce and maybe you're a, a manager or a boss or you're trying to employ people and especially sometimes when it comes to younger folks, younger generations, I've heard people say something like, man, this generation, it's tough. And there's a kind of a popular thing going on right now. People in my generation kind of talking about the younger generations, particularly the millennials in this generation. And the idea is that this is just a tough generation. They're just tough. You know, we got all kinds of adjectives to describe this, this generation. So this question of when do you know if you're done and how do you know if you've been successful and it doesn't even feel that urgent half the time. How do we, how do we take that question. How do I know if I've been successful? How do I know when I've done my part to invest successfully in the next generation so that they're set up for success? It's something that from time to time, I think we just have to hit the pause button and go, it doesn't feel urgent necessarily, but this is important. This is very important. How do you know if we're winning at helping the next generation win? Can you take a snapshot of the news? And by that, deduce the appropriate and complete snapshot of all that's going on and deduce whether or not you've won. Can you, can you look at your grandkids and say, if my, if my grandkids are representative, do you look at sociological stuff? How do you know? How do you know? It's a really big deal. For the next few minutes, I want us to keep the idea of what the sons of Issachar did well in our minds that they understood the time that they were in and they leveraged that understanding and all the people that were there in their clan with them leveraged that understanding and they did what was right in their time because they knew the time that they were in. And I want us to talk for just a few minutes about the generations that exist, at least in America, at least in the industrial world today. 
sociologists who study this stuff, this stuff's a bit of a hobby of mine to, to follow, say that what's interesting about the season of time that we're in right now, unlike any other time in recent history, is that we have six distinct generations living side by side in America right now. And a lot of what I'm getting ready to say as I try to paint a picture of the time that we're in and exactly who are the people to whom we're to leave a legacy. A lot of this information comes from a gentleman by the name of Tim Elmore. He's a, he's a Christian, he's a sociologist, and he works with a lot of companies, especially advertising agents who are very interested in what makes a particular generation unique so that they can target their advertising to them, you know? Everybody wants to make a buck, and the more we understand, the easier it is to make a buck. And so Tim Elmore works with those guys. He works with pro baseball teams, six different pro baseball teams, as they're trying to figure out the differences in the talent coming up through the ranks these days compared to talent here, and how do you hold on to sharp talent and keep people going? And he works with churches all the time as well. And he wrote a book, if you want to read it, um, I would suggest it to you. I, it's called Generation IY, Generation IY. And he talks about some of the things that we're going to talk about right now. All right. So let's look real quickly at these six generations. And then I want us to make a point to say, how is it that we as a church, perhaps you as an individual, maybe as a parent, aunt or uncle or just somebody who cares about the legacy you're writing with your life, how do you take advantage of the time that you're in and make a difference? Now, before I jump into this, let me just give a little disclaimer. I know that sometimes when people come to church, they don't have big picture in mind. I know that a lot of times when people come to church, there's something that's going on in their week or in their month, and they're very aware of what's right in front of them. Like, my marriage is a mess. Help me, pastor. Or my kids are a mess. Help me, pastor. I got a financial thing. Help me. Like, I just Give me some hope. I got some bad news at the doctor. And it's very immediate and urgent. And that's okay. But interestingly enough, I believe that if we'll take this question of how do we know if we're succeeding and how do we measure the time that we're in, I actually think that that question thought through carefully begins to speak back into issues of how do you handle the chaos that maybe you're going through right now. But because it's not urgent, if you don't hit the pause button from time to time and ask the bigger questions, like how are we really doing? Then these questions don't get vetted. They don't get considered. And we don't make the, sometimes what are small tweaks on the one end, but huge impact on the other end. We don't make them because we're so stuck in the urgent. And this is a call really to get off the page of the urgent and start talking about what's important. You understand the difference, right? Some things feel very urgent, but they're not very important. I'll give you an example of that. Every time you get a text while you're driving, at least if you're a younger generation person or you've caught up with the fact that you, know, you have to have a phone in your hand, you get a text while you're driving, it feels very urgent, doesn't it? I mean, this is a culture-wide issue. Uh, we know it feels urgent because now there are advertisements everywhere. Do not text and drive, just lay it down. But it feels so urgent. And in the urgent, we want to pick it up. We want to tap. We want to turn our eyes. But it's not important compared to what else is going on. The road in front of you and the other cars and the drivers, right? It feels very urgent. Urgent can be demanding. But this stuff, this question of what difference are we making, it's very important. And sometimes very important stuff doesn't feel important at all. 
until it hasn't been attended to for so long, and then you're caught, you're stuck. One point in our church's history, we rented a, uh, an older church building and we met, and it was right down at the other end of Cox Road or on this end of Cox Road. This building was on the other end of Cox Road, just a few miles away. And it was a gr- we were so grateful to be there, but it was an older building, had some problems. And down in the basement where our kids met, there was a sump pump. And it worked most of the time until it didn't. It never felt important to check the sump pump. Never felt urgent to check the sump pump until one Christmas Eve Eve, the largest, biggest day of our year, it rained. It rained and it poured and the floods came, you know, the rains came down, the floods came up. If you remember the old children's church song, those of you that grew up in church, the rains came down, the floods came up and the basement flooded. Now all of a sudden it's very urgent and important, right? And we finally added a battery backup to the sump pump, Right? That's what this kind of stuff is, all right? So six generations. Look with me in your message notes. There is the, what they call the silent generation. These folks lived through the Great Depression and the World War. And their motto, if you will, related to work at least, was be grateful you have a job. My dad was on the back end of this, and actually that was a phrase I heard him use with me directly. Just be grateful you have a job. If you get a good job, stick with it. Put up with a lot of junk because you got a good job. But then came the baby boomers around 1946. In fact, exactly nine months after World War II ended, there was a boom in baby making or at least baby birthing. I think the baby making happened right at the time folks got home. So nine months later, 76 million babies born. 76 million. Incredible exponential, huge amounts of people. And it changed the landscape of America. And people who study this sort of thing says that the baby boomer generation came to have an entitlement mentality of kind of you owe me. The last generation was just like, I'm just glad to be here. You know, we made it through, we survived. And the next one was like, no, no, no. We wanna make our difference in the world. It was very much a me generation kind of reality. And then after them, beginning somewhere around 1965 with the the introduction of birth control, they have a new movement called Baby Busters or Generation X. And these folks between, you know, the 1960s and early 80s had a kind of wait for me or or relate to me mentality. They, they grew up with a lot of dysfunction from their parents. There was uh, Vietnam. There was a lot of uh, social upheaval. There were racial issues. And the idea here for the Gen Xers was just, can you relate to me? I'm an individual, connect with me. This is my generation. And I can say that part of what I enjoy in my relationships is a deep connection and authenticity and community really matters to this group, right? And then after that is the generation of the kids born in the 80s and 90s called Generation Y or the millennials, if you will, bringing us right up to the beginning uh, or the, the end of the century, the end of the millennium. And in their approach to life, when they were very well healed and, and for the most part, even though it wasn't true for everybody, did very well, was that life is a cafeteria. I've got options. I've got my tray. I'm going to get a little bit of this. I'm going to get a little bit of that. And I'm going to do what I want to do. 
And they're pretty confident in themselves. And finally, there's a group of people that are being called the homelanders or Generation Z, if you will. And they, their upstart begins roughly with the onset of the Department of Homeland Security. And since they've arrived on the scene, there's been 21,000 terrorist attacks in their lifetime. They've never not had a screen in their hand. This idea of screen time, which was important for millennials, it's just irrelevant for the next generation. In a week, they engage some seven to 10 different screens regularly. Their idea here is that they're coping and they're hoping. Now, the reason I wanted to just give you a snapshot is, is everybody in this room falls into one of those generations. And every one of the preceding generations looked at the next generation and went, oh my goodness, I hope they make it. And every one of the preceding generations looked at the next generation and said something to the effect of, I'm not sure they're gonna make it. Every one of the preceding generations looked at the next generation and said, I'm not sure they got it together as good as we got it going on. There's always been this sort of thing. I mean, you can go back to ancient literature and there are parents complaining about the generation of their kids. Literally, back in ancient Rome, they discovered a couple of pieces of literature written in good old-fashioned Latin back in the day in the early 300s where there's a mom and a dad writing correspondence to each other talking about how horrible this generation is. They don't seem to want to work, and they come in late, and they're up through all hours of the night. I mean, you could just fast-forward that to 2017, right? And you can imagine parents today saying a very similar thing. This is almost a perpetual issue. But what if, instead of just looking at the next generation as people who need to finally step into their reality and take responsibility, what if there were a group of people who said, you know what, we can begin to understand the time where we are and we can begin to make a difference in this coming generation. We can actually help them succeed. We can set them up for better success. If there was a group of people who wanted to do that, what kinds of things would they think through? Let me give you five big descriptors of the millennials and the homelanders that for me doesn't come natural. I don't relate to this. And then we're gonna talk about how God's word speaks to these issues, all right? And how we as a church need to be speaking to these issues because these are the families that live within 15 minutes of this place. They drive by our building. They're the ones who clog up the roadway out here every Saturday morning, getting their kids into soccer. Have you driven by this building around nine o'clock on a Saturday morning? I feel like we should be holding church at nine o'clock on Saturday morning and call it soccer church. Put signs that say soccer this way. At least for one week, we would fill this place up. You know, they, you know, they, false advertising and all that sort of thing would probably kick in, but for at least a week, we would be very successful. So let's talk about this generation, the the millennials and the homelanders for just a second, just the world that they're in and try to understand their times. For, For these generations, for instance, everywhere they look, all around them, life is full of speed. Everything is fast, it's instant. There's no delayed gratification. If you want something, two clicks later, it's on your way to your house. And it used to be, it'd take a week. And then with Amazon Prime, it took a couple days. But now you can have it delivered day of in most markets. Speed. So if speed is everywhere, you may want to write these five things down, then that means to these generations, slow can be bad. 
Speed is good, slow is bad. Instant is great, delayed is not great. Speed. Here's another thing about these generations that's radically different than the ones before. The level of convenience, convenience in their life. It's all around them. Life is full of convenience. This is not good nor bad. But because it's so prevalent, because it's everywhere and everything is catered towards convenience, then these generations have a tendency to internalize the reality for them is then that hard is bad. Slow is bad and hard is bad. I mean, if speed is everywhere, then slow is bad. If convenience is everywhere, hard is bad. And number three, entertainment. Their world is full of entertainment. Everywhere they look, there's entertainment. You know, at any point, they can pull up on their phone and surf the internet. And if they don't want to do that, they can actually watch and stream and their, their favorite TV shows. Netflix was onto this early. So much so, this is such a big deal that now, I don't know if you know this, but on Netflix, you can pre-download your favorite television shows and movies right to your phone so that on the airplane, even when it's in airplane mode, you can keep cycling through your favorite episodes. Did you know this? It's a really cool feature, by the way. It's really awesome. I, I love it. So these aren't things that are bad. It's just everywhere, right? And so if entertainment is everywhere, then boring is bad. Boring is bad. And now teenagers have always said boring is bad, but even more so now. This is just the reality of the millennial and the Homelander generations. Their world was full, number four, of nurture, nurture, and as a result, they began, many of them, certainly not all of them, began to internalize then that risk is bad. Their world was full of nurture and safety and care. These are the kids who grew up first with car seats. Do you remember? Some of you are older like me. Remember car seats? No. I only remember them because my kids had them. I remember sitting in the back, laying in the back window of our Chevy Caprice as my mom and dad drove from Chicago to West Virginia. And I'd take a pillow and lay in the back window. Thank God there was no accident, right? This is the kids of helmets with bicycles. Not saying it's right or wrong, they just did. These are the kids who wear helmets now at dinner time. I just made that up, but I feel like that might be where things are going. I don't know, right? So much nurture and care. Well, if that's true, then, then risk, all risk, is to be avoided, it's to be avoided. Don't wanna take a risk, don't wanna put it too far out there. And then number five, this is the generation more than any other because of the accumulation of wealth and the ability of their parents and grandparents to do it, it's an entitlement generation. They feel entitled and some of that entitlement's healthy and good. They are entitled to certain things, but internalized often can be that labor is bad. Simon Sinek, one of the guys I really enjoy following, says that this generation, the millennials and the ones after more than any other can be very impatient when it comes to labor. They will work very hard, but they almost expect immediate returns. And so let me just rehearse then a little bit here. Slow is bad, hard is bad, boring is bad, risk is bad, and labor can be bad. And before I wanna throw stones at them, I have to look in the mirror and say that it was my generation and the generations before me that created a culture where these things emerged. 
So as much as anything else, today is a call to this church that has a unique ability in our community more than most other churches to reach families that we have to be very careful to not look at the generations that are up and coming and say of them, they're bad, they don't get it, they're broken. And even if we internalize and feel that way, we have to be very careful to remember that we, if not you personally, we corporately created an environment where these are the kinds of things that begin to emerge. We have a certain responsibility to the next generation. I think socially, I think kind of logically, but as a church, we have one as it relates to our relationship with Jesus and our mission in the world, we have a certain obligation to this generation. It makes me think about Psalm 78 verse four. Wonderful Psalm. If you're a parent or grandparent in the room, this is the Psalm you should read this week. Psalm 78 talks about the impact and, and, and paying attention to what's going on. And, and look at what it says in verse number four. We will not hide from their descendants. This is fathers and mothers and people in the community are gonna hide from the descendants. No, we'll tell the next generation the praiseworthy deeds of the Lord, his power and the wonders he's done. And for the whole chapter, the psalmist talks about the power of one generation saying to the next generation, we're gonna make sure you understand how great God is, how powerful he is, and the wonderful things he's done. We want you to understand that so that as you engage your day, there'll be a place for God in your thinking and in your life. Let me make a few pastoral statements about our job here as a church as it relates to the next generation. Number one, the next generation, I don't believe, I don't believe the next generation needs a better standard of living. I don't think they need a better standard of living. I mean, I hope you can do better for your kids than what's done for you. That was kind of the quintessential American family ideal. Let's just do a little bit better for our kids than what's done for us. And for some of you, like you're succeeding on that. Man, you're, you're killing it. But I'm not so sure that is their greatest need. They certainly need to have a certain level of security and home and nobody thinks about the deep things of life when they're hungry, right? So of course they need basic care and maybe extra. What I think this next generation needs more than anything else, number two, is the next generation needs a standard for living. And this is where I think that our generation might be coming up short in serving them. I think number three, it's every generation's responsibility. It's their privilege, actually, which is what I'm trying to get us to see today. It's our privilege to pass along the praiseworthy deeds of the Lord to the generations that follow. Now, how does the character and nature of God speak to these up and coming generations? I mean, while we're in this room, some of the very people we're talking about are over here in this side of the building and the very younger ones over in this side of the building and at the end of our second service today, we have a dedication service. Five kids getting dedicated and four families bringing in their kids and you know, dozens and dozens of guests are gonna be with them and we're gonna serve them a meal and we're gonna love them. And I'm gonna try in five minutes while the kids are crying and mom and dad are paying attention to the food in front. Nobody's listening, but I'm gonna try in five minutes to impress them how important and special this season of life is. And then I'm gonna pray for each kid. I'm gonna pray for the mom and dad. It's a big deal. In fact, is it true, guys? I could be told, but do we have a picture of this? 
Do we have a picture of this? Can I get a nod? Can you show that up there? These are the kids getting dedicated. Look at that's new. Yeah, that's new families in our church right now. And uh, it's really, really cool. The two kids on the bottom, same family. And so four families, five kids today. And man, when you pray this week, you can pray for them and certainly pray for those parents. But God has given us a unique, unique ability. And how do we help them translate the character and the nature of God in terms that speak to people in this generation? Because you understand that historically, the church has done a bad job at this in some real ways. Every generation, it feels like there's a few missed steps in the transference of a, a, a strong value for the things of God to the next generation. Maybe you've heard it said that Christianity is never more than one generation away from extinction. It's true. We have a job to do. And my concern is that sometimes in a church like ours that is somewhat larger, certainly not the largest, but we're certainly not small and it's real easy to come and kind of have a smorgasbord of opportunities for us. And we all come with strong opinions. I know I do, you probably do too. Sometimes I feel like if we're not careful, as our congregation ages a bit, it would be real easy to gravitate towards the things that people in our generation like and forget that part and parcel to our mission is being sensitive to the next generation coming after us. We don't get the luxury of just doing what comes natural to us. Not if we want to be sensitive like the sons of Issachar were to their times. And not if we want to help the next generation succeed on things that really, really matter. There might come an occasion here and there in the life of a church like ours where the current generation that holds authority and visible power has to say, we're going to let go of some of our preferences for the express purpose of making sure that the next generation is fully connected with and they get to hear in language they understand the great and glorious deeds of the Lord. Not changing the message at all. I mean, Jesus is still the one and only way to the Father. Those are his own words. And the word of God is still the authoritative uh, place from which we get our standard for living and our doctrine. Clearly, those things don't change. But things like color and preference and pacing and these songs versus those songs and these beats versus those beats, that changes. Always has in church history. And it almost appears to me as if every generation kind of holds on and says, well, when those kids finally grow up and see what's important, they'll finally like what we like. And it's not really the way it goes down. No, what happens is, the faith that's transmitted through people who say, I'm going to intentionally make a decision to build a relationship with people in the next generation. And I'm not just gonna help them have a, a better standard of living, I'm gonna help them have a standard for living and I wanna communicate with them. And do you understand how communication works? It's not just what I say, it's what you hear. It's not just what you say, parents, to your kids. It's what they hear. And a good parent takes a certain amount of pain to make sure that what is said is likely to be received well from the hearer. It's hard to do. You're gonna mess up a lot. But it's one of the things you carry with you. It's not enough to just tell the truth to your kids. The Bible says that this way you kind of have to tell it in love, that it's not truth alone, but truth spoken in love that makes a difference. And every parent wrestles with this because you all know the tension that comes where sometimes you have to say things to kids and it doesn't feel very loving to them. 
I remember one time, and I won't tell the kid's name really, I won't. I remember one time saying to my kid, you know, I love you, but you're not, we're not doing this anymore. Like this is, this, this is done. I remember my kid looking up at me and saying, I don't love you anymore. Whoa, just like arrow right here, just killed me. Now in the moment, I ain't gonna lie. That child had won the moment, had won the moment. Anybody else ever have a moment where your kid gave you some feedback? Maybe as a grandparent, you, you saw your kid and you got some feedback and you're like, things aren't right. We're not in Kansas anymore. Everything's not good, right? I remember, remember just feeling like the pain of like, how could you say that to me? And then I remembered, oh wait, all that's going on here is an immature kid who doesn't have a wide range of expression said the one thing that they could do to push back on what I'm saying. This is not the definition of all of our relationship. Of course, I had to discipline my kid. And of course, disciplining my kid was a loving thing to do. And of course, sometimes when you do the loving thing, people push back. But in general, for churches, for parents and for families, truth spoken in love over time is gonna make a difference. Not truth alone and not love alone. Truth spoken in love over time will make a difference. So how are we speaking the truth of God's great and mighty deeds, his amazing character in a way that the next generation hears it. It pierces through all the stuff of culture. It's a big deal. I said to you, it's a big deal because I'm a pastor. It's a big deal because I'm a dad. But for a while, I was a high school teacher and it was a really big deal to me then. Still is. How do we not just have a church for and about people in their 30s? and older? How do we keep pushing it down and empower them to see the great and mighty deeds of the Lord? Let me give you number four. Homelanders, and to some degree, millennials as well, they don't need adults for information anymore. They don't. It used to be that you had to go to a teacher or a scientist or a book or a library to get information. Not true anymore. They don't need you for information. So what do they need us for? They still need adults for interpretation. My kid's ability to gather information supersedes mine. Pick a subject, say go, put me in one corner, them in the other and say go, they're gonna outpace me in the gathering information. But I have something they don't have. I have a life worth of experience that can help them provide context for the content that they can download. I have a view of life that can help them interpret the information that they're getting. And this is where churches, I think, and adults who get it, and grandparents and aunts and uncles, I think have the biggest impact if they'll grab hold of it. You're not gonna be able to stop the information from coming to your kids. That train has left the station. I remember when we got a call from the Son, from the teacher of one of my sons. And I had not yet had the birds and bees talk with my son. And this teacher called and said, Mr. and Mrs. Hodges, we're very sorry to tell you, but a kid brought their iTouch to school today. And at lunch, we saw a bunch of boys huddled around an iTouch. And we looked over the shoulders of one of the boys and it was full on hardcore pornography. And I said to the teacher, tell me that kid's name. There's gonna be one less kid in Westchester today taking them out. No, you can't, you can't stop the flow of information. So 
What do you do? Put your head in the sand? No, you have to, I think, begin to speak the truth in love and provide some interpretation for that. So we got up to speed real quick on those values there in that video versus the values that this family lives by. Tough, but that's the job of people who want to make a difference, who understand the time that they're in. Number five, our job is to help the next generation to see the world in a way that sets them up for success. Help them see the world. The writer of Psalms said to see the praiseworthy deeds of the Lord, his greatness, the wonders he's done. Number six, here's the thing I'm trying to remember when I get frustrated. When we help the next generation win, truth is we win as well. And we win at what really, really matters. I get our sense, mine and Jill's sense of what we're supposed to do largely from an Old Testament passage that speaks to family. And so while this is specific to the nation of Israel and Christians can embrace it and benefit from it, it's specific to the nation of Israel, it still speaks very tangibly to me because it talks about the power of the home to make a difference in helping a child see the world through the lens of valuing God and the the things of God. How do you take a kid who's not naturally bent towards that stuff? And I get some hints at that from this passage. Let's run through it very quickly. Deuteronomy 6. Listen, O Israel, the Lord is our God, the Lord alone. And you must love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength. You must commit yourselves wholeheartedly to these commands that I'm giving you today. Repeat them again and again to your children. Talk about them when you're at home and when you're on the road and when you're going to bed and when you're getting up. Tie them to your hands and wear them on your foreheads as reminders and write them on the doorpost of your house and on your gates. So four quick ideas. The Lord our God, the Lord is our God, and the Lord alone. So in our family, when we think about trying to help our kids understand the great and mighty deeds, in our family we have a little saying, I use it here on this stage a lot, There's only one God in this universe and you're not him. I've had to remind my kids of that from time to time. I've had to remind myself of it, right? There's only one Lord. There's only one rule maker ultimately. And everything we do that falls under that umbrella is good for us. And when we fall outside of that umbrella, it hurts us. And this is the interpretation that we try to bring to the experiences of life. It's not so much that you're a bad person If you sin, it's that you're gonna open yourself up to pain and hurt when you sin. It's a very different perspective. And there are people in this room would raise their hand and share their testimony would say, I was not smart in my choices and it brought pain and harm to me. These are the stories we interpret for our kids. Number two, you gotta commit yourselves wholeheartedly that making a difference in the next generation is not a half-time job. Moms of young kids, you know this. You know how full time this is. Churches that are sensitive make this a high priority. Number three, repeat them again and again. There's power in repetition. It's not a one-off. We don't want just one meaningful experience for our kids with the God stuff. I don't want just one meaningful student camp. 
I want it year after year. I want to bring them week after week. I want them serving and engaging people who are broken and, 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 and pressing in, and some are broken and not pressing in. And I want them bumping up against them regularly because in the repetition of those experiences and in our interpretation of them, we begin to chip away at just the culture's reality and we begin to build a different picture. By the way, this is exactly how you build culture in your workplace. For those of you that are managers and are responsible for culture, you do it the same way. Repeat over and over and again and help interpret what's going on. Reinforce those values. Show those values when they go well. Show those values when it goes poorly and help people see the importance of those values. Number four, tie them to your hands and foreheads as reminders. So you repeat it often and you remind it often. When I think of hands and foreheads, I think about the work of your hands and the, the thinking that you do. So in all that you do, and even as you think, build reminders around this. And in a subtle way as a church, we do this. You know, even as, and even as something as, as simple as putting scripture up on the walls that speak to specific things that we're doing in the life of our church. It's a reminder, it's a visual reminder. In our home, we talk about things. Remember when we said this, but it's a full-time job. I think about the role of the family and then I think about the role of a church and a family. Let me read for you this passage. This might be new for some of you. Ephesians 4. So Christ himself, so the authority here is Christ. This is written to every Christian, so if you're a Christian, this is you. So Christ himself gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the pastors, and the teachers. So what are church leaders supposed to do? To equip his people for works of service. So the body of Christ might be built up until we all reach unity in the faith and in the knowledge of the Son of God and become mature, attaining to the whole measure of the fullness of Christ. Now, look at this powerful language here of maturity. Then we'll no longer be infants tossed back and forth by the waves and blown here and there by every wind of teaching and by the cunning and craftiness of people in their deceitful scheming. Not that. Instead, speaking the truth in love will grow to become in every respect the mature body of him who is the head that is Christ. So number one, it's the responsibility of the church to equip God's people. My job is to equip you to help you succeed. And succeed at what? Well, your own life with God, but also understanding the importance and the legacy you can build for the next generation. And the goal in that, the reason we wanna do that is the goal is unity. It helps people to know God, to grow in the faith. The impact of that, number three, is gonna be stability. Man, that's all I want for my kids a certain ability to stand when the storm comes, a stability. I don't want my kids to internalize so deeply that labor is hard and convenience is awesome, so anything that takes a while and is delayed is bad and to be avoided. Those are the very things that helped me grow into the man that I'm becoming today. It was in the tough seasons of life when I stuck with it. One of the biggest challenges of being a leader in today's world for me is this, is that often when you lean in, people bail out. It's tough because then you don't have the resiliency to keep pressing through to the growth. It's the problem in many marriages. They come to a natural point of conflict and when it gets hard, they bail, somebody bails out versus leans in. 
It's tough. So the antidote to that is spiritual maturity. That brings with it a certain amount of stability and also with it a discernment of truth. The ability to say, that's true. I, I see that. And that's not just true out there. It's true for me. That truth pr- pr- proposes an ought onto my life. It obligates me to some degree. Number four, speaking the truth in love or the fruit of speaking the truth in love is growth to maturity. So speaking the truth in love brings growth. And so the role of the family and the role of the church comes together. I just wanna say to you with all the appropriate godly joy I can take in this statement, this church does a pretty good job at that. We understand the power of the family united with the power of the local church and our partnership with parents and grandparents and aunts and uncles and neighbors to raise up a generation who can proclaim and enjoy and value the praiseworthy deeds of the Lord. Now, we're not perfect at it. We got a long way to go. But we know that our mission at the core is that we're here to help families become fully developing followers of Jesus. But that isn't something our organization does. I mean, it does. But that's not the way to see this. This is what people in our church do. It's not like the organization's making us do it. No, 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 no. The reason the organization does it is because people in our church do it. We do it to such a degree and with such frequency and with such fervency that it's literally a value that we're beginning to see and have always seen a certain amount of traction with it. And the truth is, is that at this stage in our church's life, our children's ministry has never been stronger. It's like rocking and rolling. It's pretty amazing. That's why I'm so excited to stand with these parents, pray over their kids and thank God for the gift of life and know that if they'll make it a habit to come here, we won't be perfect and we can't push back on every onslaught of the world and we're not gonna protect their kids in some kind of cocoon or a bubble, but we're gonna help them learn to celebrate the praiseworthy deeds of the Lord because we're trying hard to understand the time. Here's the question for you. Are you trying hard to understand the time that you're in and the legacy, the impact that God can use you to make. Like you gotta do that in your family. You got to. You, got, you gotta understand them. You gotta press in. You gotta help them understand and interpret and see the world. They don't need you for information, but they do need you for interpretation. What that means is if you're older in this congregation, We can do it without you. No one of us is essential, but we can't do it without all the older people. I mean, you're important is what I'm trying to say, even though you yourself individually, if you need to leave for whatever reason, are welcome to. But we need you. We can't be successful at the next generation with just youngish people doing it. The scripture talks about this. Older ladies are to invest in younger ladies and helping them to understand what it's like to live a godly life. The the implication is that older men would invest in younger men and help them see a godly life. And it requires a certain amount of getting out of your comfort zone because all of us like to hang around people like us. And there's nothing wrong with that. It just can't be all that you do. So for instance, in this season of our small group life, we've said to people, getting together socially is awesome. You can do that, but let's not call that a small group anymore. 
Let's not say that that's the place where spiritual transformation is happening. It might be the place where relationships are built that might facilitate spiritual growth, but spiritual growth happens best when people get together. They talk about content from God's word and they build a relationship and they pray. They get to know one another. And in the context of that relationship with strong biblical content and honest conversation, we'd call that speaking the truth in love, people can begin to interpret the world around them and begin to value the things of God. And we don't want just that for 40-year-olds and 50-year-olds. And thank God that's not what we have. So Four Corners today, I'm reminding you, and every mom and dad and aunt and uncle and grandparent in the room are reminding you that you have a job given to you by God to make a difference in the up-and-coming generation. Our church will take this very seriously and we would love your help. But first of all, you probably should see that you have that responsibility and understand what that means for your family. And while you're figuring that out, we'll partner with you. And while you're figuring that out, you can partner with us. We'll figure it out together how the power of the home and the power of the church can come together to make a difference. Maybe not for every kid everywhere, but at least for the kids who God brings to this place, like those five kids on that screen that you saw earlier. It's a big deal to me. It's very close to my heart. And next week as we end this series, I'm gonna share with you some of the most exciting news that I've been able to share with you for like six months. You're gonna love it. I've got some pictures. You're gonna think this is awesome. And it specifically relates to this church's responsibility to invest in the next generation. But right now, why don't you grab out your Connect card and let's get ready to take a couple steps together. I've been talking about our responsibility to make a difference in the next generation, but it could be that as I've talked about our responsibility to help the next generation see God, that you don't even have a relationship yet with him or or it's so messy and convoluted and disconnected for you that next step A would be your right step today. Today that you're making Jesus your savior and Lord. The Bible that we keep referring to describes in the New Testament in every one of the gospels that Jesus gave his life on a cross. He was really dead. He was put into a borrowed tomb and God raised him from the dead. And then if we'll put our faith and trust in that work that Jesus did on the cross and in his resurrection, we can have a relationship with our heavenly father through the work of his son, Jesus. So that's what I'm calling you to in next step A, to take the pen and just check the box. In a few moments, I'm gonna pray. You can pray along with me. And then when the offering buckets come by in a few moments, you'll just put that in there and we'll communicate with you about it. Last week, we baptized seven people who had made significant advancement in their spiritual life. That leads me to next step B. Today, I'm choosing to be baptized. If you wanna be baptized or have your questions answered, the next one is, I believe, on December 10th. We already have four adults signed up for that. It'd be great. It'd be our last baptism of the year. If you've been putting it off all year, it'd be really good to get it done before the year is over. And so if you want to be baptized or have questions, just check the box. Next step C says this, all right? So contact me about making an investment in, uh, into the four C's next generation through serving. So like if you felt stirred and maybe you'd like to serve or at least explore serving, this doesn't commit you to serve, but this commits you to exploring serving. If you'd like to serve with our kids or our students or in our 20-somethings as we ramp up for that in the new year, then uh, you can just check this box and you'll get that communication. You can come be a part of those conversations. And the next step, D says, contact me about making an investment in the next generation through financial giving. 
So if you, would, if you have been blessed financially and you wanna help make a difference, if you'll check this box, I'll send you some unique ways you can do that. Again, it doesn't obligate you, it just makes you aware of some information. And then finally, next step E says, please send me some information about Four C's Grow Experience. These are those four unique experiences where people come together for a couple of hours. We talk about some deep things and we call each other to make commitments for our own growth. And if you'll check the box, we'll send you all those dates for the remainder of the year. So would you go ahead and take your next step, hold that card. And this is that point in the service where our folks who call Four Corners Home begin to get together the tithe and offering that they're gonna give back to the Lord to support the ministry of this church. So this is that point where people are like writing checks and getting out stuff. It's okay, that's what all the movement is. We have some folks who are gonna come forward and receive our, our giving today. And as they're doing that, I just wanna remind you that as one show of the impact you're making, those five faces that you saw earlier, God bringing families and new life here, and you're making a difference. For as long as God will keep them here, you're helping make a difference. You, you literally are providing the space that they're being trained in. You're literally purchasing curriculum that teaches them things like Jesus loves me and God wants to be my forever friend and I can make wise choices. Very powerful, powerful life stuff that parents are probably saying all the time anyway, but we get to partner with the parents and you're making that happen through your giving. It's not an accident that God blesses us with young families because you're faithful to give and we're able to create an environment where they feel welcomed and we're able to make a difference together. Thank you for that. Let's pray about our offering. When the buckets come around, you'll put your card and your offering in there together, all right? Would you pray with me, Father? Thank you. Thank you for Jesus. Thank you for the son that you sent and gave his life on a cross so that we could have life with you. Father, my prayer right now is for the folks in this room who carry the responsibility to make a difference in the next generation. Father, I pray that we would not be overburdened by this, that we'd not be overwhelmed by this or discouraged by it, but instead we would see that with you, we can make a powerful difference in the generation coming up. That God, they need to know your great and mighty deeds. Father, would you use us moms and dads, aunts and uncles, friends and neighbors, would you use us to help the generation coming after us to be set up for success spiritually? Father, I pray for those men and women in the room that are declaring, Jesus, wash away my sins. Cover me in your shed blood. I want to have a relationship with you and I have nothing to bring, so I trust the work that you did for me. And Father, as this church continues to press into the next generation, Father, I pray you would give us incredible favor, that you would awaken gifts in people that maybe have been long dormant. You would help them get a bigger vision than just their own preference, but they would in fact see the power of ministry done for others. We pray all this in the name of Jesus, God's strong and holy son, amen.